Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Tasha Disjardins is a trusted, creative, result-driven human resources practitioner and DEI strategist with expertise at the intersections of HR, DEI, and wellness. Natasha has a proven track record of enhancing employee experience, engagement, and retention. Her impact spans industries such as public media, broadcasting and trade association, marketing and branding agency, and federal government consulting agencies. She holds a bachelor's degree in criminology and criminal justice a master's degree in interdisciplinary management with an HR focus from the University of Maryland, and a certificate to lead in diversity, equity, and inclusion from Northwestern University. We are excited to welcome Natasha to change the narrative with J.D. Fuller. Hello, Natasha. Hi. How are you? I am doing great, J.D. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. I just, first of all, I want to thank you for joining on such short notice. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for that. Wait, short notice? I thought I had like a full two days to prepare for this. <laughs> Good one. I'll take that. So I'm, I'm happy to share space uh, with anybody who knows the people that I know. I really appreciate that. And I, I love Glenn. I think he's awesome. So I think that uh, that's good stuff just to start off the bat. Please tell me, what is the most important thing people need to know about you to get a sense of who you are today? Mm-hmm. That is a great question. Thank you. There is so much that I can say to that. But when I think about what is most important about me, is that I would like to say I am expansive. Okay. I am expansive in a sense that I think. Every day that I live, I learn a little bit more about who I am as a result of life circumstances, challenges, experiences, good and bad, and just the dynamics of the environment and of the world that we are living in. I think that coming out of a pandemic, Many and most of us have been challenged in ways that we have not been challenged before. Many of us have had to exercise and grow muscles that we really did not even know existed. Many of us tested the strength of our resilience, and many of us are learning from where we might not have been the strongest. And so I think when it comes down to who I am as a person, it is ever expansive. It grows as the days go by. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to begin by describing myself as such because, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. the question you probably were hinting at or the answer that you probably was expecting me to say who, what I do um, professionally, what I am into, 
And generally, when people answer that question, they'll start off by, hi, I'm Natasha. I am a human resources practitioner and consultant. I am a certified DNI practitioner and strategist. I lead at the intersections of human resources, employee experience, DNI, um, with the hopes of no, nope, um, don't go too far. Don't go too far. Uh, okay, exactly. Don't go too far. No, those are the things. I am a mother. I am a daughter. I am a wife. I'm not a mother. I'm not a daughter. But we have all of these titles of the things that of the hats that we wear in society. And for me, it's important for me to begin with who I am Mm -hmm. and the definition of who I am. The definition does not change, but it grows. Mm -hmm. But what is true to me and is always constant or probably also expansive are my core values, my fundamental beliefs. Um, And that's why I started where I started. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. So let's go backwards then and tell me something about your childhood that's important to and the catalyst for your expansiveness? So about my childhood, many people are shocked or surprised when I say so and try to question me about it. Mm -hmm. I migrated to the United States of America in 2004 for college. I am from the island in the Republic of Haiti. Oh, okay. I think for me, one of the things that I think my earliest recollection of being a child in Haiti is the embargo of 1991, just living in the country and just, I can't necessarily say much about what I remember, but about that time would be the bullet shots after curfew. I was a kid at that time, probably, I'm not going to say how old. But it's, or how young, but yeah. And so I think for me, growing up in the country, I think that it really, I love the country. I love my childhood, my rearing in Haiti. And I think that coming from a Black republic, which was kind of like very much a melting pot, like here in the U.S., where You run into white people and Asian people, Lebanese people, and they will all tell you that I'm Haitian. And Haitian to them means I am Black because it is a Black republic. And so we really did not, looking back, we did not really face racism as we have it here in the United States and all of the racial issues that we have. But one of the things that I do know that was very prevalent and has really informed how I have transferred said knowledge into the U.S. is we did have classism. And so oftentimes there are levels of microaggressions in America that most people don't catch on to, but I catch on to. As it relates to classism, it sometimes can be a little bit quieter and subtle, like docile versus like the aggressiveness of racism and so but otherwise i love it i love my country sadly because of the political situation back then my family had to migrate to the country as well 
my junior year of college, I would say when kidnapping first became a thing, it's now being covered by national news, but it was a thing back in 2006, 2007 when my family migrated. But I think that that's a that's a that's an interesting fact about my childhood. Oftentimes people would question and say, you don't sound Haitian. You do not look Haitian. What does that mean? Exactly. What does that mean? However, it does show up sometimes <laughs> when I speak. Um, sometimes I'll have a pause wherein I am hearing the word in French. I see the word in French and I'm like, okay, what's the proper English translation to that? Or I might see the word in my head. I'm like, okay, that's the spelling. And the pronunciation of the word, I might skip a beat. And I remember my first like recollection in college, I think it was like my junior year. I was taking a communications debate class and we were doing a Lincoln-Douglas debate. Mm -hmm. And I got an A minus on a specific debate, my very first debate. And in the commentary, my professor, who was a white male, commented and said, you probably might want to practice pronouncing words that you don't use in your everyday vocabulary. <laughs> Back then, I was just like, well, that was rude. Yeah, for sure. So my professor an email and one email, and I said, I'm sure if you have, if you had an American Airlines ticket dated X, Y, and Z date of first time being in America and learning this country, this language and adapting to American culture for the first time, you too would probably have the same difficulty pronunciating certain words. But other than that, I'm proud of myself for assimilating so well that you couldn't even tell that I was a foreigner. But that's disgusting. Well, you don't have to assimilate. You just have to integrate. And that is so well, disgusting that, that he said that. I mean, yeah, I mean, but for me, I didn't really understand yeah, it progression because we don't have those in my country. And I was new to the U.S. Mm -hmm. I didn't really understand that. Um, but miraculously, my A minus turned into an A plus. Exactly. Um, as, well, as well it should have. And so to, in today's world, we would really look at that as a microaggression. And those never really start. That, those never really stop. And this is why, but see, Natasha, Natasha, this is why I don't call them microaggressions. Because that was painful as you were telling the story. And that's, that's a wound. And there's nothing small about that. And it, 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 it you know probably was in some ways what led you to the work you're in. And so while it is a part of making you who you are, it's so offensive and hurtful. I, I'm sorry you experienced that, really. I mean, honestly, I still remember that professor till, till this day. And I'll go on record to say that he was actually one of my favorite mm. college professors, not only because he was handsome, but... Yeah. <laughs> That always helps with the A's. But I think for me, it was the fact that he could have done a better job at apologizing and taking accountability. Yes. And that's what we look for in leaders and people of position. But what he did do is change my A minus into an A plus. And he was more mindful in 
really encouraging me, congratulating me, and highlighting the strengths Mm -hmm. of my communication skills, what I did well, and being more mindful of how he framed the areas of improvement. Yeah, I get it. That, to me, is something that speaks volume. Okay. Um, And so I would not necessarily say that he said it from a place of Maybe it was a gross assumption, but I don't think that it was malicious. And so, you know, that that takes me to to my thing, which is, you know, intent is one thing, but the outcome is what matters, you know? And so I hear you. I think it's gracious of you. I'm glad you got something out of it. I'm, I'm old. And so I don't, I'm not as gracious any longer. I, I, I have no patience for, for statements that are just not thoughtful. And so, you know, you rebounded well, and that's all that matters. It's your story, not mine. So I respect that. Yeah, but I mean, that's something that we're talking about from a college perspective. Yeah, right. I get it. But in today's world, when we talk about it and we think about it in a grand scheme of aggressions in the workplace, and while I did mention a microaggression earlier, I don't necessarily believe in micro, macro aggression. An aggression is an aggression. And it's intentional. Aggressions are specific to the recipient. You said what you said <laughs> because it you knew that it would impact this person a specific way as a result of their gender, class, social, economic, whatever it is, their their gender identity, their race, um, national origin. It is specific to, you know, the recipient. And as a result, because of that, it's safe to say that, you know, let's just remove the micro and just call it what it is. It is an aggression rooted in whatever it is that you intend. Agreed. Agreed. What led you to your latest adventure, which is human resources practitioner and DEI? D-E-N-I. I don't know. I've heard it so many different ways. D-E-N-I strategy. All the acronyms. Oh, all the acronyms. man. I get, I get twisted. So, yeah. What, what, yes. what do you do? What does that mean exactly? So I would say, yes, all the stars always pointed to human resources. A little bit about my childhood. I am the child of an educator who is a, who was also an administrator back home in Haiti of one of the largest and only accredited language school on the island. And then, um, and so it was an English as a second language school that taught adults, prepared, well, taught adults how to speak and write English, read um, English comprehension and all of that good stuff. They were also the only accredited institution at the time to proctor SATs, TOEFL, MCAT, and all the good exams that you, TOEFL and all the good exams that you need to do in order from a foreign or American standpoint in order to get into American universities and colleges. And the other parent is a pastor. Um, but most of my time I spent with the administrator, working with her. And my mom was Mrs. D. And everyone referred to us as little Mrs. D's. Because every summer I will be in the office with Mrs. D. 
And it was pretty much her shadow using keys to help correct exams. I was 16 when I sat in on my very first class overseeing like examinations, making sure people aren't cheating and people saying, oh, you're a tough one. But really just shadowing my mom, just seeing how she led her office. I remember two years, right before COVID, I went to a conference, the Haitian Ladies Network Conference, which is the largest Haitian gathering for Haitian women professional in the U.S. And I remember towards the end of an event, I met someone at the door who was waiting on her Uber to go back to the airport and to Haiti. And we got to talking and she was an attorney and she said, oh, so what was your name again? And I tell her my full name and she said, hold on. Are you Mrs. D's daughter? And I said, yeah. She said, there is absolutely no way. And I said, why? And she said, I'm an attorney today because of your mom. Wow. There was an exam that I had taken in France and no one administered, no one provided that exam for me to actually uh, take the whatever exam that she needed for either Fr for France and England. But my mom went ahead, got the school to get certified, sat down with her and told her, you are going to take that exam. We're going to make it happen and you're going to pass it. And lo and behold, she did. And she's like, anytime you were in Haiti, call me anything you need. I wow, will give that's you. That's amazing. I would run into people till this day and they'll tell me I am where I am because of your mom, because of your dad. And because of how they peopled with people, they led with empathy. Um, they treated people like people. They saw people's humanity. They invested in their people. They understood that if things were not, my mother understood that if one of her colleagues are having marital issues at home, that bleeds into the workplace. How you speak to your students, how you speak to your colleagues, how you speak up to me. And so what you're going to do is control your tone, first of all. And now that your tone is controlled, let's talk about the real issue and how can I help? How can I support you and how can I be there for you? So that's a long version of it translated into my very first job straight out of college. Um, I worked for a marketing and branding agency. They had a one to two year turnover where people just came and just were like exiting out of the company after one to two years. And as I'm offboarding staff and I'm asking them, well, why are you leaving? We have such a great culture or we have everything. I mean, there's so much you're going to miss out on when you leave. And that's when they started telling me, well, I am experiencing aggressions from my manager or I'm not receiving this. I'm not receiving that. And my follow up question would be, well, did you talk to the COO? And people will say, I'm good. Yeah. And so I remember then naively thinking, I should go back to school, get my master's degree in human resources, come back to this organization and be their very first human resources person. And it will fix all of their retention problems. And then I got into HR, came back to the organization and did my do and realized, oh, it is more than that, yeah. but it was my entry point. And even before that, undergrad, 
Um, all of my temporary jobs, all of my friends were working at Target, working at a restaurant here and there. I was working as a human resources assistant, talent acquisition coordinator, et cetera. So I was always temping in HR without ever having an idea or inclination that I was going to become an HR practitioner. And here we are, 2010, circa 2010, and... The rest is history. Okay, so, you know, many of us have started out in a passion and, you know, it turned into burnout and it ruined the passion. How are you ensuring that does, that doesn't happen to you? Oh, it's already happened. <laughs> it happened. So, it has long gone. So yeah, what are you I doing think, about that? So I think the number one thing that you do about something like that is... Really understanding that no matter what your background is or what industry that you work in, you need a network. You need people who support you, um, who are there for you. And for me, it has been friends, family, but most importantly, my therapist. Yes. I'm a my therapist, my therapist. And the journey to finding the right therapist was not an easy one. It was not a fun one. Uh, and I like to liken the journey to finding a therapist as dating and finding your life. <laughs> we'll have to kiss a lot of frogs <laughs> before you find the person that is for you that you build a life with. And it's similar to therapist I don't think that it takes more than one session well it does take more than one session because you have to go through the intake process right. but once you get past the intake process by session three or four you should be able to tell whether this person is for you or not for you and if they're not for you treat it like a boyfriend okay next go back in there find the person that is for you because in therapy, that is a safe place where you can really un unload and talk about the reels of the reels. I remember in the middle circa of the pandemic, I remember once calling my therapist and telling my therapist, I almost said, I almost left my job today. I think I'm done with HR. And she said, hold on now. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I need you to take some steps back. And we're going to talk about it. And this is what we're going to do. And those are the steps that we followed. And so I think that, you know, there is a misconception that people get into HR because they love people. Um, getting into HR will not lead you to right, love that, it. That's good. That, it actually allows you to see all the shades of people. But what really keeps you in HR is... The desire to truly still see the best in people, want to see people succeed, equipping people with the tools that they need to succeed, and really a love for seeing projects too, for streamlining products, projects, helping grow the organization, problem solving just being on the front lines, being a first responder. It's not something that you do for income. And if that's 
your goal of being in HR. I'm just doing it for the paycheck. There are plenty of other things you can do for the paycheck. You are you are actually hurting the industry for those of the people who do care. Right. Let me ask you something about that. So um, the biggest, what would you say the biggest barrier, because these are your words, the biggest barrier to driving transformative change. What's the barrier to that when you're talking about, because one of the barriers you mentioned is not doing it for a paycheck. That's a barrier, right? Yeah. So what would yeah. another one is? I would say executive buy-in. Oh, that's good. I would say sometimes executive buy-in because sometimes a transformative change comes with a budget that your CFO might not be willing to sign off on. It requires people to take accountability that we have to do things differently. So it does trickle down from the top, as we've always believed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does. It does. It does. I mean, because, you know, in an organization, employees, no employee starts a job and comes to work and says, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I think that every employee is cognizant, protective, and aware of their professional brand. They want to do the best work. Because first of all, their work represents them. Secondly, doing a great job keeps them employed. But doing an even better job opens up other opportunities by way of lateral or upward promotions, salary increases, bonus checks, recognition, whatever it is that you have. And so I believe that employees inherently want to do good. I believe that employees inherently want to develop and grow. And alongside that, employees say, hey, and as I give you the best of me during these eight to five, nine to five, or 10 hours a day that I work, or, you know, 40 to 50 hours a week that I work, there are three things that I want to know from you is that as I give my best to you, can I trust you? Do you care about me? And if you care about me, can I trust you with my well-being at work? And I can I trust you with my development? Can I trust you to develop me? Can I trust you to see my performance and promote me accordingly without me having to ask for it? Adjust my pay without me having to ask for it? So those are the three main questions that employees just want to know that, hey, as I'm giving you my best, I need to make sure that you got my back in those three areas. Okay, so so wait, wait, wait there, because I want to ask you another question that will take it a step further, which is, you know, HR is such a mystery to all of us. You know, it's it stands at the top of the hierarchy and seemingly looking down on us. And what you're describing is something that's much more user friendly. What is another way in which HR can become more user friendly to its employees? Well, we are user-friendly. Well, I don't want to speak in generality. But that's the ideal. The ideal is that you are user-friendly and you're there for us. 
But I'll tell you, well, we are, as employees, uh, we, are, we don't feel that way. As employees, we, we do are, not feel that way. And you are correct. We are humans who provide resources mm-hmm. to humans, hence human yeah, resources. Right. And yes, you're correct. Um, for me personally, and I can't speak for everyone in the industry, I will say that when I meet with employees, especially for the first time, my first question to you is, what has been your previous, your past experience with human resources professionals? That's good. And I ask that question because I understand that HR is not a one-size-fits-all. Everyone in the industry does not operate the same way. And so if at the last five organizations that you worked with, you had bad experiences with HR, those experiences, or dare I say traumas, will follow you into this organization. And therefore, as your new HR practitioner, and based on my beliefs and my value systems, I want to understand where you came from, what was your experience there? And then introduce you to myself in terms of, hi, I am your human resources practitioner. I am your success partner in your, you know, life cycle here at the organization. And this is my responsibility, whatever the scope of it is, I'm here to help you. And if it's not In my area of expertise, I will let you know and circle back with you within the same day, 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever the window is, and redirect you to the person that needs to help you next. And before I make connection, I reach out to the next person and say, hey, I'm going to put you in touch with an employee. This is their experience with HR at previous organizations. Or even they've had a bad experience within this organization. This way, this next person has an idea. I don't want to say treat with precaution, but be mindful of your interactions with this person there. Because there's a saying that says trust is earned. It's not given. But I do believe that it is given. Because even if I do everything that is right by the books, unless this employee determines that, and finally I can trust you, it's always going to be a barrier. So my role as an HR practitioner is to always make sure that you always know that when we are in the space, it is safe. However, I do give the disclaimer, if whatever you're going to share breaks any of our policies or the law in a sense that you tell me, I had this interaction with my manager, but please don't say anything. I'm sorry, you're put the organization at risk. So I might have to look into that. Yeah, that's different. That that totally makes sense. I think it's a matter of what I hear you (laughs) saying is that, you know, communication and follow-up are keys to successful HR practices. Yeah. Let me ask you about this. I saw this on your LinkedIn too. What is the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act? Is that something that's fairly new? Yes, it is. It is fairly new. And it's just really an extension or add on to uh, the the family 
Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it, it gives more specificity around, you know, how to treat or how to support legally the rights of okay. employees who are pregnant. Um, because as you know, our laws as we have them are just so dated when you think about Title VII. But the aggressions and microaggressions, the aggressions and levels of racism that we experience in the workforce or in day-to-day American are just so sophisticated that at eyes glance, it would be hard for anyone to say, oh, yeah, it falls under Title VII, yeah. even though we know that it is racism, even though we know that it is discrimination. Um, and that's where, you know, you hire your attorneys, you file your EEOC claims. But really, I think that we have reached a point where people have just, the society has become so sophisticated. So we already know all the, what you can't do. So now we work around to create higher and more expansive way of doing the same aggressions, committing the same crimes, but in a way that, hey, we can tie it to the existing laws. And so with with that law particularly, it just really spells out more rights, protective rights that, you know, women who are pregnant have. Okay. But it's still developing the the post that you're referring to. Actually, I retweeted, I reposted from an employment law attorney. Okay. Um, And so it's not something that I had um, delved into personally, but that is the gist. Yeah, that's good. I was just curious about what would be different. So that gives me an idea. So you also do marketing and branding of mental health services. Can you say a little bit about that? So I, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say mental branding, marketing and branding of mental health services. I always present myself as a mental health advocate okay. um, because in my practice of a human resources practitioner um, and the example that I gave earlier about my mom um, and how she managed, you come to understand, well, I'll say it this way. And as a, as a licensed clinical social worker, you can have an appreciation for this. Mm-hmm. I believe that we are the trump sum of our life experiences, good or bad. Our life experiences inform us of how the world around us, you know, operates. So if we've had a traumatic life experience, like, like traumatic, like past, upbringing, what have you, we operate from that place of trauma. But when we... You know, and so I think for me, one of the things in my advocacy for mental health is that, you know, we are all influenced by so much more than just who we are, mm-hmm. our job title, our pay, et cetera, our lifestyle, our upbringing, everything that happens outside of the walls of the nine to five. We bring that into the nine to five, whether or not our managers, our employers, everyone else acknowledges it. And so how do we understand, and I'm taking it to a next level, not all performance issues, work performance issues, are work performance issues. Sometimes it is the things that are happening on the outside. Um, It might be an undiagnosed ADHD condition, depression, stress, burnout, as you mentioned. And you have a high performer who is now had a shift in how they show up, how they perform. 
Is that someone that we put on a PIP? And because they're not successful, they have not successfully turn around or turn over, um, we terminate that employee? Or is there a point in time where we sit down with that employee and say, rather than having a performance conversation, hey, is everything okay? Everything's cool. I know this as of lately, you've been keeping to yourself and I'm not trying to get into your personal life. But if there's anything that I need to know in order to support you to be successful in your role here at X organization, please do let me know. And let's say it continues and now nothing has changed. We now say, hey, we have, we've, ex- we've identified, we've noticed X, Y, and Z. And it always has to be skill specific, work specific. Is everything okay? Because, and you know, you just continue the conversation. We know this is you. We know that you are a great performer and et cetera. But there's anything that we can do, even if it's outside of the office, maybe you might need a schedule adjustment or whatever it is. Let us know because we want to see you succeed in your role. And more times than often, it might could be there was a life, a major life event in Lee's life, or possibly other things going on that they may or may not disclose. And so you can always recommend and remind them of the resources that are available by way of low copays for specialists. Well, no, not really. Don't go that deep. (laughs) Yeah. EAP support, like you might not want to speak with us, but just remember we offer free EAP services. This is how you can get in contact with someone that you could probably feel more comfortable disclosing disclosing that information to because it's privileged information. You're protected um, by HIPAA. Yeah, that, that's that's good. I, I think that's a that's an, a helpful way of handling um, someone's change in habits because. It, there are underlying issues and, and you can't legally point them out on the job, but to make it skill p- specific is really, I think that's a key note for someone to take away. Let me ask you one more question before uh, you give us your handles of where you are and how people can find you. What does DEIJ, JEDI, DEI, whatever letters people use, what does it need to do to move us forward? What are the next steps? So I am a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner that is DE&I. And I do believe if DE&I, DNI has everything that it is. Okay. We don't need additional acronyms, although some people would argue and make a good case for accessibility um, because people living with disabilities are highly overlooked, especially if those disabilities are invisible. There are two main disabilities that I can think of. You know, you have your mental illnesses that are one. They're often overlooked. Managers and people are very uncomfortable approaching those conversations in the workspace. Um, I remember working with a client once who believed that we shouldn't afford employees to take use their sick leave for mental health days. They don't need mental health because they have sick days. And I'm just saying, you know, and then the other is, you know, the deaf community in a sense that oftentimes forums such as these 
don't always include captioning for people who either have full hearing impairment or partial hearing impairment. Um, when we think about accessibility, we're talking about the user experience online. If I have, if I'm colorblind or have any form of visual well, impairment, partial or full, how can I access your, you know, website? So there, there is, I understand that community, the, the deaf community. Oh, and also with the deaf community, there is a rise of a lot of sign language interpreters who are frauds. They're really doing sign language and whatever they're doing is just gibberish. And I don't want to try to make any hand movements to be disrespectful to the community and insensitive to the community, but that there is a high rise in that in the sense that these interpreters when hiring are not properly vetted. And so we do have an accessibility issue to that end. And I am split. I agree with the, I am in full support of the community when they say we have to add A for accessibility to um, the the languages. But I do believe that if we are inclusive, if we are truly inclusive to the diversity of our audiences, then the accessibility should be covered under the D. and that's just my perspective. Yeah, well, it's your, your answer. So that's what's important. Yeah. If someone else wants to, if someone from that specific community, and I have a, a colleague of mine who went through the same certification program as myself, um, and he's a huge advocate for the deaf community, um, who's very adamant that the A belongs. Mm-hmm. And while I am in support of that, but I also believe with done right, we don't need all of the additional language and I and personally the language around we don't need DNI we just need to create belonging uh, if you can't acknowledge why I'm different I doubt you can actually make me well fit. that well, that is a perfect place to land please please, please uh, give your social media handles or website or anything that would help you be more accessible to people who are interested in learning more about you yeah so I am not a huge social media person. Okay. Um, but my LinkedIn is pretty much my first name and my last name. Um, and I do believe that it's, yeah, my first name and my last name. I'm easily, I'm easy to be found okay. on the LinkedIn. And so, yeah. And my email is, my email address is pretty much my first name, middle, middle initial L as in love. Um, and my last name at gmail.com for now. Listen, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I mean, you dug in deep with the with information that people don't know. And I and I really do appreciate it. I just, again, want to thank you for being willing to come on with what I consider short notice, but I'm so glad you thought two words was helpful. <laughs> I mean, no, 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 no. This was great. This was fun. I mean, you could tell that I, this, yeah, you could tell that was a two-day, it's <laughs> But no, 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 this was fun. And hopefully we can do this again yeah, sometimes. So. Absolutely. And thanks again. Take care, Natasha. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.